Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. If you like the stories you hear on the Story Collider, we think you'll like the Sierra Club's new storytelling podcast, The Land I Trust. It's a first-person audio series that features people telling stories about climate change and how the shift from fossil fuels to clean energy is affecting real people. You can find it online at beyondcoal.org slash stories or wherever you download podcasts. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt it. I felt it. I felt it. I was so and I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker. This week, we're presenting two stories about home and community. Our first story is from Keone Mahalona. It was recorded in September 2017 at Meow in Wellington, New Zealand, at our show produced in partnership with SCANS, the Science Communication Association of New Zealand. As a child, uh, I was always afraid of sharks uh, in the ocean, and any little sign that was there that could perhaps be a shark would really give me a fright. So if there was a black spot on the bottom of the ocean floor, I'd get a fright. Uh, if there was this cusp of a wave that you know, could be a shark's fin, I'd get a fright. Um, even what I didn't see sort of gave me the thought that there could be a shark, a shark there, and that just terrified me. And I struggled with this because as a native Hawaiian, I thought, why am I afraid of sharks? Because Hawaiians shouldn't be afraid of sharks. Sharks are our protectors. You see, as a native Hawaiian, uh, sharks are known, can be known as aumakua. And aumakua is kind of like a, a kaitiaki. They're a guardian. They're an ancestor who's been reincarnated uh, in this world to protect and to protect us. And there's stories like this all throughout Hawaii. In fact, my great-grandmother, Anne Piahi, uh, was, was known to swim, literally swim with sharks in Pearl Harbor. That was before it was bombed and drenched and all that stuff. Um, so, you know, you would think that I wouldn't have any anxiety in the water around sharks when, when we've got this rich history around, you know, sharks being our protectors. And even to this day, I still get a fright in the ocean. I do a lot of ocean swimming here in Aotearoa. And I do hope that the Maori sharks talk to the Hawaiian sharks. Uh, so when they see me, they'd be like, oh, he's cool, he's Hawaiian. Uh, I don't know if it was, say, Jaws or news outlets publishing stories about people being eaten alive by sharks, but something instilled the sense of fear in me. And it, it angers me that my instincts in the water are governed by these Western influences rather than the stories of my tupuna. And we have a lot of great stories in our family, like rich stories about our history, whether they're stories about our indigenous culture, 
or stories that sort of make reason uh, with the Western world. I haven't fact-checked the stories of my tupuna, and I don't intend on. But regardless, um, the stories really shaped my view of the world as a child. So my great-grandfather uh, was a, um, my grandfather was an engineer. He got into Notre Dame at the age of 16, so apparently he was, he was pretty smart. Um, when New York had its blackout in 1960-something, the story goes that my grandfather had this device. And he went to the people in New York and said, hey, look, I've got this device, and it could really solve your energy problems. And apparently, Big Brother or somebody didn't like this, so he was threatened um, over you know, possessing this sort of technology. Um, and I just want to pause there, because like, my grandfather sounds pretty cool, right? He's like this engineer, he's got this really cool device that could save the world, and he's being threatened. It's sort of like you know, the perfect grandfather you could want. He's sort of like Rick, right? Like from Rick and Morty. Um, but it got, the threats got so bad that my grandfather committed suicide. And I never got to meet him. And so as a child, you know, this story really intrigued me. And I thought, what was it? What was it that my grandfather invented? What is it? A perpetual energy machine? Um, could I one day find his invention and like use it to save the world or get rich or maybe do both? Because you can do that these days. Um, and so I was just always inspired this, by the story and it motivated me to want to be an inventor. And I remember as a kid, I had this one idea my dad loved it. It was this turbine that you would, like a wind turbine, that you would put on a car, because when you drive a car, it creates a lot of wind. And so it would capture this wind and then convert it back into energy, right? So it was like this really cool, cool device. Obviously, I didn't understand the laws of thermodynamics when I was 10. Um, but aside from those sort of impractical ideas, we had a lot of practical uh, creations growing up. You see, my family, we were really rich in love and support. Um, but we were poor in material things. So we just had to make things work. Um, my sister and I grew up in what we call a shack. It was a, a house that my father built with his own hands. Um, it's one of those houses you just sort of keep adding on and adding on as you have the money to. Um, didn't have any rooms. The bathroom didn't even have a, have a door, which was awkward when you had guests over. Um, and we didn't have mains electricity, but we did have a generator. Uh, yeah, so we lived in a hole. And I mean a literal hole, not a figurative one, uh, because we couldn't uh, sort of, we had this uh, TV antenna, and it had to be put up on a hill just so it can pick up some stations from the nearby island. And the one station that we could pick up just so happened to have Star Trek. So as a young kid, I started watching Star Trek, and it was like TNG, this is sort of 92, 93, and it was shit. Um, Deep Space Nine came along, I was like, oh, it's cool, it looks a little more realistic, you know, they're using like models and stuff and their visual effects. And then there was this thing, Voyager. And I started watching Voyager, and I fell in love with Voyager. And I don't know, I know there's a lot of Voyager haters out there, and I'm, 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 I'm ad-libbing now, they gave me a time restriction, I'm totally gonna go over it. But how many of you have actually like watched Star Trek Voyager? Yeah, okay, well, that, well that's all right. It's really freaking good. Go on to Netflix and binge watch Voyager. There's some really great storytelling there. Uh, you can learn about how to run a company and, and, and like work together as a team. You'll learn great words like licentious. <laughs> Tuvok used that word, it's a great word. I just learned it three months ago. <clears throat> it's sexually promiscuous. <laughs> we'll get to that part later. Um, <laughs> 
So I really fell in love with Voyager, and it was critical that every Monday night at 7 o'clock, we had gas in that generator so I could watch my program. And my dad knew this. And so I'd be there watching my program, and all of a sudden, the generator, it, it makes this noise when it's running out of gas. So it sort of goes, da 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 That's like it's operating normally. And then it kind of goes, da 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 And that was a sign to me that this generator is running out of gas. So I would wait for a commercial break, run outside, and scream to the top of my lungs, Dad, the generator's running out of gas! And um, the program would come back on, so I'd run back inside to watch Voyager. And then it's going, do 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 So it gets more frequent. And I'm like, oh my god, the generator's going to die. So I would just scream and scream until finally my dad would top the generator. And he always had a spare can of gas ready for me on a Monday night. And sometimes he'd forget. And when he forgot, he would actually siphon gas out of the car just so, uh, just so I can watch my program. Um, yeah. So, you know, in hindsight, I actually had a really exceptional and loving upbringing. And, you know, my family showed that to us through their actions. And, and you know, those sort of stories really helped me to see the greatness and the resourcefulness of my family. But there were a few stories that weren't so great. And I think it was those negative ones that sort of really had an effect on me. So my dad always drove this junk. And a junk is like a really crappy car that you know, he could make go because he was a self-taught mechanic. Um, and this car like had a hard time going up the hill. And he said it had something to do with the gas filter. So he had this little thing he'd do where he'd get like the spanner and bang the bottom of this car just to get the gas filter working again. I don't know, maybe he couldn't buy a new one. Somehow this worked. So one day we're driving up the hill and sure enough, the car starts dying. And so we pull over, the spanner's not in the car and he makes me run up and down this hill to look for a stone just so I can climb under the car and just bang this gas filter so it can get going again. And that's the sort of things that I had to experience. And I hated it. I was so embarrassed. I just dreaded that, like, one of my friends would see me, you know, on the side of the road. Like, like what's Kayoni up to? And I would make my dad take me to school early in the mornings so that my friends didn't know that we were poor and that we had this junk. And my sister didn't like to go early. So sometimes he would take her later and bring me earlier just so no one would see us, like, show up in this junk car. But sometimes we just didn't have a choice. And dad would just have to take us to school at the right time. And the car would make so much noise. Everyone would know, up oh, here comes the Mahilonas, late again. And so I remember this day really clearly. My sister and I, we looked at each other and we said, look, we do not want to be poor when we grow up. Um, we don't want to live in a shack. We don't want our parents to live in a shack. So let's go to school, get really smart, get a good education, get a job, and like, you know, do well. And, and we did just that. Um, but since then, my life has taken many unexpected turns. Um, <clears throat> I had this dream as this young brown boy of inventing the warp drive. This is that Star Trek influence. Um, and that really propelled me into high school and wanting to do science and wanting to do engineering. Um, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut because astronauts go into space, but uh, I sort of thought you had to go to the Air Force Academy to do that, and who the hell wants to go to the Air Force Academy? Uh, but then I realized, hey, uh, engineers can go into space, especially ones from MIT, so I was like, I gotta go to MIT, that's the only way I'm gonna get into space. Uh, so I worked my ass off through high school, got an MIT, and then this other college came up. It was called Olin. It was sort of a new, sort of risky college. I actually flipped a coin <laughs> because I couldn't make up my mind. I did, I did think some other things through, but the coin just sort of validated my decision, if you will. Uh, and so I went to, uh, to Olin. Um, I didn't know what degree I was gonna do. I ended up 
deciding on mechanical engineering because the professors were kind of cool. Some of them were pretty hot. Um, and it was the sort of safer multidisciplinary degree to pick. So how did I go from like this young brown boy who wants to invent the warp drive to just plain old chocolate mechanical engineer? Um, it's as if the more I learned about science and engineering, the more I realized my wildest dreams were very likely improbable. And uh, yeah, and you know, that, that really affected me. But throughout my journey and my careers, there'd be these perturbations in my reality, these inexplicable things that would happen that would just make me think, is there more than just science that's going on here? So when I first came to New Zealand on a study abroad, uh, I had deja vu left and right. I would see people that I thought I knew, and like, but I didn't, I had never seen them before. And later I, I would sort of meet these people or meet their families and get to know them. And they'd be in a really important part of my, my time here in Aotearoa. And th this was just happening over and over again. So later on in life, I thought I might come back to New Zealand to study and live. And again, I had these signs. Um, like one day my dad, he, he was ill with pneumonia and he just gets up and he's like, I gotta go to New Zealand, I gotta go to New Zealand. And so my mom rings me and tells me this story just out of nowhere. Um, I was living in Boston at the time, uh, working at a robotics company and I would just be walking down the street uh, or like working in my garden and I'd get this whiff, like something would just trigger my brain and like remind me of New Zealand. There was no Monaco around, there was nothing in Boston, you know, that could possibly be New Zealand. Um, but I would just have these connections. And then one day I had a dream. Um, and in that dream, I was actually here in Wellington and I met this Maori boy and he actually turned out to like be the man of my dreams. Um, and so I thought, huh, maybe, maybe I'm doing the right thing. Maybe I need to go to New Zealand. <clears throat> so I came back to New Zealand. I was studying uh, physics at Victoria. Um, I noticed Victoria's here, so I won't say much about that. Um, but it was a tough time. I was like, what am I doing here? It's Wellington. Like, my flatmates kind of wanted me to move out. I was sort of pursuing somebody. And one day, I, you know, just was at a barbecue, and I met this Maori boy. And I took him for a ride on my bike. And it's a really great story, so buy me some beers afterwards, and I'll divulge. <laughs> Um, but basically, after two weeks, I moved in. So here I am, an indigenous scientist. Um, I make decisions based on facts and data and good research, but I also make decisions based on the inexplicable things that somehow have a sense of meaning to me. And, and I think that's really important. I, I think a lot of scientists, you know, you, you can be quite hard-nosed and, and data-driven, but I think if you can take those risks, it can really add to, you know, research and innovation. And I have this story that I tell myself that, um, and maybe it's to help me justify my life choices. It's this quote that I say that things happen in a roundabout way. So I came here to New Zealand to study nanotechnology so I could become this like filthy rich entrepreneur. Um, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, and then I started working on some water technologies, which involved nanotechnology. And I thought, hey, you know, water is sort of like the next gold. Um, I could really do a lot of good here with this technology. That startup died in three months. Um, it was painful. Um, and then my partner needed some help at his organization that he works at, which is Te Reo Irirangi o Tehiku o Teika. We're an iwi uh, radio broadcaster. And when I started working there, I, I saw opportunities like everywhere. And so right now, our sort of new project, 
and I might sort of kind of launch this tonight, um, is we're gonna use machine learning to help us revitalize Te Reo Māori, to accelerate the speed at which we can revitalize uh, Te Reo Māori. So here I am, like, you know, revalidating to myself that, you know, maybe I was destined to be here in New Zealand to work on this project, and that everything that happened along the way, you know, has, has sort of led up to this. Um, I'm not this filthy rich entrepreneur, and I won't be able to buy back the land in Hawaii so I can give it to my people. Um, but I'm learning that, you know, these sorts of technologies are really important to indigenous people to help us to revitalize our sense of identity and sovereignty. Um, you know, while America still occupies our country, uh, I see a lot of value in what we're doing today. And, and you know, that, that makes me happy. And, and I don't think I would have been here if it wasn't for taking those risks, if it wasn't for that story that my grandfather or my grandmother, you know, might have been doing something that didn't seem very factual, I don't think I would have been here today. And I, and I wouldn't be working on this really cool project. So, so yeah, I think, I think I'm pretty content with things uh, right now. And um, yeah, I'm still working on that warp drive thing. So <laughs> thank you. That was Keone Mahalona. Keone works at a Maori social enterprise whose mission is to promote and preserve the language of Maori tribes in the far north of New Zealand, and they use science and innovation to create the tools they need to achieve their mission. He hopes his story will encourage other Maori and Pacific Islanders to pursue a future in STEM. And if you yourself are based in New Zealand, we are hoping to return to that amazing country in the new year. So look for upcoming shows on our website. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. Once again, if you like the stories you hear on Story Collider, we think you'll like Sierra Club's new storytelling podcast, The Land I Trust. It's a first-person audio series featuring people telling stories about climate change and how this shift from fossil fuels to clean energy is really affecting real people, all the things environmental scientists care about. The series has 10 stories from families throughout the South, from a South Carolina mayor moving his city to 100% clean energy to generations of a West Virginia farming family trying to protect their land from fossil fuels to the Lumbee tribe's battle to protect their river and climate refugees in Florida and North Carolina and, and so much more. So there are also five full podcast episodes with more stories about the special places in the South. So you can listen to The Land I Trust at beyondcoal.org slash stories or on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Chuck Collins. It was recorded in June 2017 at the Oberon in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme that night was sweet and sour. When I was in my mid-twenties, I had a job working with mobile home park tenants who were trying to buy their mobile home parks and own them as resident-owned cooperatives. And I worked all over New England as land values were rising and these mobile home parks were at risk. I worked with those tenants. And I got a call from a group in Bernardston, Massachusetts, 30 mobile home park residents whose park was up for sale and they needed help. Uh, one thing you should know is in my mid-20s, I, I looked incredibly young. I looked like I was about 17. I had painful skin acne. I was fairly skinny and awkward. 
So I remember the first time I met with the leaders of this resident group, they sort of looked at me like, this high school student with shaggy hair and bad skin is gonna help us save our homes. But uh, they, they came to trust me. And I think part of what happened is I, I interviewed each of them about their financial situation. So I sort of knew all their personal financial secrets. And in those conversations, I really got to know people. I knew what their savings were. I knew what their incomes were. I knew what, because I was trying to figure out, did they have enough money? Were there enough people there who could have contribute to a down payment towards the purchase of the park? So at, 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 after I had done my analysis, we had a meeting with the nine leaders of this mobile home park. And we were meeting in Harlan and Mary Perro's double-wide mobile home with this group of leaders. And I was actually personally in agony in that moment for two reasons. The first reason is I had interviewed this group and determined that they really didn't have enough money. That there were a, a third of them that were sort of retirees with nest eggs, but there was another third that had like zero or negative net worth to fall back on. It was not a wealthy group. And that they were, they were about $35,000 short of the funds they needed to be able to buy that park. Only a third of them maybe could buy their own shares. So I was in agony because I was gonna to have to break this news to them. The other reason I was in agony, however, was that I had a secret. I knew all their financial secrets, but they had no idea that I was a wealthy young man. Uh, that when I was 21, I had inherited a substantial amount of money. Uh, my family's from a, a, a meatpacking family from the Midwest, and I had this wealth. And I actually was thinking, well, $35,000, I could personally write a check to cover that gap, I could even pretend that, oh, look, I got a grant from somewhere else. And, and I was actually thinking that I might do it, that I might actually, because I had come to really appreciate just how vulnerable they felt, how, you know, what a community they had built together, and that all of that was at risk. So I broke the news to Harlan and the whole group of lead, nine leaders. I said, here's the situation, $35,000 gap. And there was this little Paul in the room. And then this guy, Reggie, said, well, I have enough to buy my share, and I have another $6,000 that I could have put into the purchase. And I'm like, that's all his money. And then uh, the Dundorfs, this couple said, well, we have enough to buy our share, and we have another $7,000 that I could put in, that we can put in towards the purchase. And around the room, this group went. And because I'm the only person who knows their own individual private financial information, I happen to know that they are putting everything they have on the table. I had not factored that in to my assessment. And it came to Harlan and Mary, and Harlan and Mary said, uh, we've talked about this, uh, Mary and I, and Harlan says, uh, and, and uh, you know, we can buy our share, and we're gonna buy Mrs. Rivas's share uh, confidentially uh, and privately, I don't want anyone to share that in order to protect her privacy and her dignity. And I happen to know that that was all of Harlan and Mary's nest egg, and that Mrs. Rivas was one of the people who was probably going to have to move if the, if the cost of the park went up at all. And then there were just a couple thousand dollars short, and Harlan and Mary's daughter came in, and she worked at a bank, and she said, I can put in the rest. And they cheered. They had done it. And they literally 
pulled out their checkbooks, and because we hadn't opened up a bank account yet, they just wrote the checks out to me. They emptied their bank accounts entirely, handing me the checks, trusting me to put them in the, take them to the bank. And as I drove away, my hands were trembling and my brain was seizing up because I actually had never seen anything like it. And uh, the day came. The good news is they closed. They bought the park. The Bernardston Mobile Home resident-owned park was formed. And at the day of the closing at the law office, all 45 residents wedged into the office. The men had cigars like they were proud parents. They were like, what are we going to buy next? The Pinecone Diner's up for sale. Harlan says to the Greenfield Recorder newspaper, the headline is, we are hostage no more. We are the Israelites have been wandering in the desert, but we just bought the land from Pharaoh. <laughs> Mary came up to me. She said, you're a smart young man. You should go to college. I'm like, I'm in my mid-20s, you know. <laughs> she said, you could probably get a job on Wall Street, you know. You could make a lot of money. I don't see why you're hanging around with a bunch of old fogies like us. I, I said, actually, I can't think of anywhere I'd rather be today. And then she kind of leaned over in a very maternal way and she said, have you ever tried Noxema for your skin? <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> Something happened in that day for me. Something shifted. I would sometimes think I had a change of heart. My brain scientist friends would say that actually my brain was rewired in that moment. There was something about the firing of my mirror neurons, the way in which I was being exposed and identifying with a whole different group of people. You see, I grew up in a wealthy community. People were generous, people were charitable, but I had never actually had this experience of solidarity, of people being like all in for each other. My brain scientist friend says there's a part of our brain called the, the, the right supermarginal gyrus which is the part of our brain that, where we begin to differentiate ourselves from others. We begin to understand what it means to walk in other people's shoes. What they said is if you grow up in an affluent community where you don't experience a lot of reciprocity and helping each other with needs, that part of your brain is actually underdeveloped. It's understimulated. And what I was experiencing was an explosion. And all I didn't understand any of that brain science. What I knew was I wanted what those people had. I wanted to have that kind of community. And I began to understand that actually having this wealth was a barrier to being in a reciprocal community, in a community of solidarity. And so I thought, as any 26-year-old might in that situation, maybe I should get, give this wealth away. And so I wrote my parents a letter with my intention. I said, thank you for these opportunities. I was able to go to college without any debt. But I see these other needs out there, and I actually think this money is a barrier to my own development. Well, a couple days later, when time went by, you know, this is back when you send letters with stamps, you know, and it went to Michigan. So my father called up and he said, you haven't given away the money yet, have you? I said, no. He says, well, I'd like to come and talk to you about this. 
I said, sure. So he actually came to visit me here in Massachusetts. We took some long walks, but at one point he said, you know, you grew up in a sheltered environment. Do you understand bad things can happen? You might wish you kept that money. For instance, you're single, but what if someday you have a partner and that partner has an illness? Wouldn't you wish you had that money? Or what if you have a child someday and that child has a special need? You're gonna wish you had that money as a cushion to help that situation. Have you thought about that? And I said, well, Dad, I have. I, if that were to happen, then I would be in the same boat as 99% of the people I know. I would have to get help. That's what people do. He said, yeah, but in the end, you would probably have to fall back on government. And that's a lousy and tattered safety net. To which I said, well, maybe I would have a very personal stake in fighting to make that a better safety net. To which he wisely replied, oi. <laughs> so idealistic. Now I have children in my 20s now, and I always say to them, your brain is still developing. <laughs> and that's true. My brain was developing and my heart was developing. In that moment though, I said, uh, you know, my dad, my dad said, you know what? I understand. No strings attached. I love you. You'll always be my son. So with that, I went home to the National Bank of Detroit. I went to the trust office. I saw my trust advisor, this woman, Glenda Allen, African-American woman from Detroit who, who uh, is a civic leader to this day. And I'm signing the papers to transfer this wealth that's in my name to a couple of foundations. She sort of looks at me, she says, are you doing this out of altruism? I said, no, actually, I think this is, this is in my selfish interest. She's like, hmm, are you gonna be okay? <laughs> I said, I think so. I mean, everybody's acting like I'm jumping off a cliff here, but I think I'm gonna be okay. To be honest, I had no clue as to how much other advantage I had wired into my life. I gave this wealth away, but there was this flow, four generations of economic stability. Uh, uh, I'm white, I'm male, debt-free college education, huge advantage, access to healthcare, social networks, social capital, all of that, just flowing and hardwired into my life, the, f the, the way privilege works. But in that moment, it felt like I, was taking a leap. So I went back to my job, working with mobile home park residents all over New England, and several months went by, and then something bad happened, which is the house I was living in burned down, and no one was hurt, but I was completely disoriented. In fact, I lost every piece of paper that said who I was. I had to reconstruct it all. And the night of the fire, the fire department dumped millions of gallons of water into this house. And the next morning, my housemate Greg and I are kind of standing in this charred cell, shell of a house. And four cars pull up. And out of those cars come 10 of these Bernardston Mobile Home Park residents. And they have casseroles and trash bags and shovels. And they have come to help us put our lives back together. And in that moment, I thought, I think I'm going to be okay. And I think I'm getting what I want.
That was Chuck Collins. Chuck is an organizer, agitator, researcher, and storyteller based at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-edits inequality.org, a global website focused on the income and wealth divide. He is the author of Born on Third Base, a one-percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. If you're in a giving mood after listening to Chuck's story, please consider supporting us on patreon.com. If you sign up to donate $10 a month or more, we'll list your name in our show programs across the country, as well as send you a very cool comic book of four of our stories. You can find out more about that at storyclider.org donate. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our awesome staff, vendors, and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, Liz Neely, Christine Gentry, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Meow and the Oberon for hosting these shows, and to everybody out there working hard to make the world a better place this year. Thanks for listening. Before we go, we just want to remind you one more time that if you like the stories you hear on Story Collider, we think you'll like Sierra Club's new storytelling podcast, The Land I Trust. It's a first-person audio series that features people telling stories about climate change and how the shift from fossil fuels to clean energy is affecting real people. You can find it online at beyondcoal.org stories or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks.